we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Ah, dear listener, we've overcome technical difficulties. We're launching our first (laughs) simulcast. Welcome back, dear listener. It is episode 102 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove with me. Live over the airways, the Velvet Glove himself, Scott. G'day, Trevor. How are you? I'm going well. So this will be an interesting That's good. experiment. It will be interesting, won't it? Yeah. Mm. So mm. for those of you listening, as you normally would to the recorded podcast, we're doing a simultaneous live broadcast on YouTube. If anyone wants to join in and chat with us, they could and... Not holding out much hope there, but it's an experiment. <laughs> it's just uh, worth trying. Well, we are starting a couple of hours earlier this week than what, are you, what we ordinarily would. Yes, so, yeah, we, we are. Yeah. So, dear listener, uh, it's the 28th of June and the census for 2016. Uh, details just released uh, yesterday. And, Scott, the religion question came out and the answer was that 30.1% of um, Australians put down no religion, which I thought was disappointing. What did you think? Well, i got to admit I was a little bit surprised at how low it was. I, I thought it would be higher. I wasn't um, quite prepared to go as high as you did. I think your initial um, guess was 42.9. Mm-hmm. I said that at 38, 39, so I went with the higher number. I went 39. And it was... I don't know. I don't know. I haven't looked at the numbers in detail. It would be interesting to see how many there were people that said spiritual but not religious and that sort of stuff. Um, how many people wrote Jedi and that type of thing. So I think if you add all those in together, then you're going to get a truer reflection of the numbers of people that are actually non-religious. Mm. The the other um, amount was very low. Point eight of one percent was okay. Other. Well, then that's that's bugger all, then, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. All right. So, dear listener, um... it's it's look, it's it's not surprising. I mean, the religions did run a um, a fairly oh, repent for the end is nigh, cataclysmic sort of uh, campaign to give out it to try and get people to say that they were still religious. But you know, it, at the end of the day, it's not surprising. But it is um, it is a little bit disappointing that we didn't break the forty percent mark. Before we go on and I have my little rant, Scott... No, please little... go on and have your little rant because <laughs> I am interested to hear your rant. Yeah. A few little housekeeping things to, to get through. So, dear listener, if you're a follower on Facebook, I put a little chart showing the progress of these statistics over the last 100 years and invited people to give their best guess of the uh, figure for no religion and offered a shout-out on the podcast to the person... With the first correct answer. Nobody got it exactly, but the closest was Simon Goff. Good on you, Simon, at 30.4. Well done, Simon. Very good. The, um, uh, for some strange reason, some outlets reported 29.6 initially, Scott. The Guardian was Yeah, I that. did I did see that. I, I, I didn't understand why it had shifted so much during the day, and I didn't, I didn't look into it or anything like that, but um, I gather there must have been some foobar with the... Um, with the initial reporting of it, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. the Guardian just made a mistake, the reporter, and read it wrong. I don't know what happened mm. there. So, um, mm. so anyway, well done, Simon. Um, uh, so that's that out the way. Um, it did come out and say that there's a lot of problems with the census, with the computer crashing, but they have reported that 95% of Australian households actually did the survey, which was a means it's pretty, you know, it's a... It's a it's a legitimate census, I think ninety five percent. Absolutely, yeah. It, it, it was really good. I mean, the the whole thing about bringing it online and that sort of stuff is it um, it takes away. Like, remember, you used to pr- fill out the census, and the bloody you, it was time for the next census by the time the results were published from the last one. Right. You know, that's how ridiculous it was. Mm. Whereas these days, you know, there's they're at that point now. If what ninety eight percent of us use the computers. I didn't see what percentage used the computer. Okay. Mm. Say more than 90% of us use computers. 
Next time around, we can expect it to be 94, 95, that sort of thing. And then once it gets closer to 100, we're going to get to the point that we'll be able to download the information the next day. Almost. You know, yeah. Hmm. It's it's That'd really... Absolutely. Mm. I'm really pleased with it, the way it's happened. Mm. I mean, it was a, it was a foul up at first, but, you know, mm. it's, uh, it's certainly improved. One other issue before I launch into my rant is, yeah. well, this is part A of my rant. Scott, if I see another headline saying, losing our religion or losing my religion, <laughs> I'm going to scream. This obviously is a take from the <coughs> REM song. I can, that's the only place that it could surely be coming from. It would be the only place it was coming from, for sure. It's just a yeah. strange expression, losing our religion. Fun fact, dear listener, the reference to um, losing my religion in that song has got nothing to do with religion. Um, it's really? a reference from the southern states of the USA where... Losing your religion is a metaphor for losing one's temper or civility, Scott. Oh, really? Mm. So nothing actually to do with religion. But by God, every headline that came out was some sort of variation of, is Australia losing its religion? Have we lost our religion? Blah, blah, blah. So so that's that. But Scott, let's... Well, you know what? One would hope that we had. But anyway. Well, clearly we haven't. <laughs> this is my bit, Scott. This is my gripe. Okay, let's hear you grow up. of Australians. We are living in a civilised Western democracy. We've had access to the internet for over 20 years. We're not some hillbillies in a third world country. We are sophisticated Westerners. Hmm. And 70% of Australians could not tick the no religion box, which basically puts them in the category of believers in some sort of wizard god. That, 70% of Australians. It's a... Think that way. I mean, if we had a question on there saying, yeah, do you believe like... in a flat earth, and 70% <sighs> said yes, we'd be going, well, what's our education system come system to? Yeah. Scott, it's this, a very similar question. It's pathetic that so many Australians continue to hang on to this nonsense. Well, okay, you've got 70% of them saying that, yes, they believe in a religion or something like that. I take the number back, and, you know, the number to me that's more important is those that turn up to mass on a regular basis. Mm. And, you know, the numbers of people that attend church at least monthly is 10% of the population across the country. 8%, Scott. 8%, exactly. okay. According to McCrindle Research 2013 survey, just 8% of Australians attend church at least once per month. Okay. So that's fine. So you've only got 8%. Then you've probably got a higher number that turn up to Mass on for Christmas and Easter and that sort of thing. About 30%, I think. Okay. It might be 15. I'll go as high as 30. There was another research on that one as well. I've lost track of it. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. So you got 30%. So you got 30% of the people out there that still consider themselves to be submarine Catholics. Yeah. You know, they surface on special occasions. Actually, that was 30%. If it was, it would have been of, of people who declare themselves Christian. Okay. So not 30% yeah. of the population. Yep. Right. So you've only got 30% of the population that can... You've got at most 30% of the population that have some belief that drags them into the, into the church at least once a year. I don't think that's a large number. You know, it's a... It is a small number of people that uh, consider themselves to be some sort of religious freak, I suppose. Scott, yeah. what you're saying is that the figure just doesn't represent the reality. No, the, the reality, the 30. The reality is... 30.1% is wrong. Yeah, that's, that's my opinion because you've got only 30% of the population turn up to church at least once a year. So I think the whole thing's ass about. I, I think, think it should right. be 70%. Sorry? I, I think you're right. I think the figure yeah. is wrong. I think a lot more people, if you really, you know, sat down with them and got them to engage properly in thinking, would admit that they really aren't Christian. 
Absolutely, and I, I think that I think that's right. That if you could get people to really sit down and work with you and that sort of stuff, you would end up with a much lower percentage of people saying that they are religious. But Scott, it's a disgrace that you would have to sit down on a one-on-one with them. Oh, absolutely, them it's, it's, it's the idea so that they could then come around and go, oh. I guess you're right. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take. Yeah, it, it is ridiculous that you'd have to sit down with them and beat them about the head and that sort of stuff to try and get them to uh, change their opinion. But it's a reality. I'm afraid you've, you've it, got it, to be stuck with it. It's a reality that it's a disgrace, Scott. Because I mean, <laughs> what's going on here is people are saying, "Oh, I went to a Catholic school. My parents are Catholic, um, and I'm wanting my kids to go to a private Catholic school." Say, so, "Yeah, I'm Catholic." Like that's the sort of thinking that's going on but to that person i say you're not a catholic Mm. do you believe in heaven and hell jesus adam and eve original sin noah's ark an infallible pope i mean are you subscribing to you know most of that no well you're not a catholic yeah and it's a disgrace that we have to sit down and hold your hand and say you know think about this Mm. Um, you know, do you subscribe to all of this sort of theory before making your decision? It's just soft, lazy thinking by people when they've come up to the questionnaires and by the time they've got to it, they've had enough and they're just trying to get it finished and go to bed, I think, Scott. It's just... How far down was the religious question? Oh, I can't remember. Um, But... uh, that, you know, it's just soft, lazy thinking, um, I think, where people just really haven't stopped to think about it. And this is, you know, I've got more respect for for evangelicals. At least they're honest about it. I, people who claim that, oh, yeah, I'm a Catholic and they never go to church, I just, I've got zero respect for people who, who take that cultural line. It's It's pathetic. Um, so, so I think, well, that was my initial thinking, Scott. And I also want to say to these people, so it's the disinterest that Australians typically show in important issues, I reckon. So, you know, okay, I accept we have an inordinate interest in this particular topic and (laughs) your everyday Australian (laughs) doesn't and just won't. Like, I get that. I mean, you know, for them it's... Fairly meaningless topic, but I really want to. Um, I'm just, I guess, this feeling, Scott, where people just don't pay enough attention to important things, and at some stage it's going to bite them on the bum, and then they'll go, Oh, I wish I'd thought about that. And mm. to the people who are cultural Catholics or written down that they're a Catholic or a Christian, and they're not at all, um, I want to say to them that. You know, it's these groups, the Christian groups, who are stalling progress in this society and by you lazily scribbling down that you're a Christian, you're not helping things. And one day your daughter might need an abortion when she's raped by some guy or your son might want to marry or might want to marry his boyfriend or your brother might get done for a minor drug possession can't get a US visa and join you on your skiing holiday in Aspen, or maybe when you're an old person, you might be suffering from some debilitating and very, very painful disease, and you wish you had the option of euthanasia, and it won't be there, and you'll only have yourself to blame, is what I'm saying, (laughs) Scott. (laughs) I'm working on a theory, Scott. Remember we talked about... um, organ donation, and we said that people who didn't tick that they were open to having their organs donated in the event of their death should be at the bottom of the list when it came to receiving organ donations. Yeah, absolutely, they should. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Joe Bennett has joined the event. Good on you, Joe. Yeah, good day, Joe. How are you? We've got at least one person. Good on you, Joe. So, so yeah, so we had, well, I proposed this theory that, you know, if you haven't put your name down on the list as an organ donor, then if you need an organ, you should be at the bottom of the list in terms of... Absolutely, and I think that is entirely sensible, it's entirely reasonable, and it really should happen. Yeah. I feel like saying to these people, Scott, 
who couldn't be bothered thinking about their answer and is still claiming to hold Catholic principles, I feel like saying, you want, you, you want some pain relief? You want euthanasia as an option because of this terrible pain you're suffering? Well, let me look at the 2016 census. What did you write down then? <laughs> hey? That's people's attention. That's... <coughs> Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, it's all tongue-in-cheek, I'm not being serious, but that's the sort of thing we need if we're going to get people's attention to say, oh, okay, you you want some the benefits of some progressive legislation down the track? Well, how about you do the right thing now? And if you don't, you're at the bottom of the list. The problem is that the religious lobby, the ACL, is going to take this number and say, yes, there was a big step up, but that was because you lot rigged the question, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And they're going to get their position put forward and they're going to argue that you've still got a large number of Christians out there and that you've got to listen to them all. That's where, that's where the problem's going to be. Mm. Um, and I've forgotten of, what else I was going to say. Anyway, it'll come to me. It'll yep. come to you. Speaking yep. of rigged questions, Scott. Um. So that initial rant, dear listener, I have actually softened with you, so I'm going to play sort of devil's advocate with myself here now. <laughs> so you might recall, dear listener, that I said I'd started reading a book called Thinking Fast and Slow and have called for anybody to join me with a book review and Simon contacted us. He's got the book, he's going to read it, and he and I will do a book review at some stage down the track. But Scott... Oh, good on you, Simon. Yeah. This book has got some interesting thoughts about how people think and it's very relevant sorry simon i have to give some of the book away in this particular episode it's very relevant to the question of the census and how it was constructed because uh dear listener one of the reasons i tipped 42 percent for no religion was because that's what they had in new zealand and i figure well hey we can't be that different to new zealanders like of all the people in the world culturally in, in terms of our thinking, we'd surely, Scott, have to be... That's our closest cousin. And they had... Yeah, and that's, that's, why I was, that's why I was thinking 39, because I thought we'd mm. be close to what New Zealand was saying, but we're not going to be exactly there. Mm. So, dear listener, yeah. as we've said before, the difference in New Zealand is, whereas our question said, what religion are you? And first option was no religion, and then a bunch of religions put down. In New Zealand, they say, are you religious? Yes, no. And then if you are religious, complete which religion you are. Otherwise, skip down to the next question. So that, Scott, provides a completely different thought process when people are looking at the question. So when the question is phrased as, what religion are you? It has a, a, a sort of an implied notion in there. Well, of course, you're some religion. What is it? Tell us. Whereas the New Zealand model is, well, you know, it's quite possible you're not religious. What are you or are you not? And having thought about that, now what is your religion? And uh, this book, Thinking Fast and Slow, in a number of different examples shows that the way you frame the lead-up to questions can alter the results dramatically. And, Scott, my thesis will be that that the secular atheist movement needs to desperately, prior to the next census, get this question changed to show that, uh, to similar to the New Zealand model. But um, uh, what I'm going to give you here, Scott, is some of the thinking from this book so, so that people can sort of get an idea of, of where we're going with this. So when people are thinking... Um, uh, just your mind as it's going along, you, you, you're using what they refer to as either system one thinking or system two thinking. So system one is just quite a lazy method of thinking that we use when we're tired and it's just intuitive and it's a quick response without actually crunching the gears and making effort. Whereas system two is... Uh, where you actually stop and you actually exert your thinking to some point and say, oh, I've got to concentrate on this and work it out. So system one, intuitive. S- system two, I've got to work this out. And 
most people during the course of the day are just humming along on system one and rarely engaging system two unless they have to. And one of the uh, examples of that, Scott, is um, they ask people a question. Well, this is an easy one, Scott. We'll just start with an easy one. A bat and a ball costs $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? And most people just go, well, 10 cents. A bat and a ball cost $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? 10 cents. The ball costs 10 cents, yeah. yeah. It's, well, there you are. That's using system one. If you, if you crunch your mind and you think about it carefully and you go, hang on a minute, if the bat's a dollar and the ball's 10 cents, then that's 90 cents more. So that doesn't work. And you actually work out that the answer is a dollar five for the bat and five cents for the ball to get to your dollar 10. Here you go, Scott. You've got to engage from system one across to system two. The bat and the ball cost a dollar ten. The bat costs one dollar more than the ball. How much does no, the, the ball cost? The ball costs ten cents. No, no. That would mean the bat costs a dollar, and the difference is only ninety cents. But if the bat oh. costs a dollar five, and the ball costs five, then you get to your total of a dollar ten. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's a classic no example of your lazy, intuitive system one just goes off, you know, a dollar and ten cents, it's clear. You don't have to think about it. But if you really sat down and knock it out with system two and go, let me crunch these figures out, ah, it can't be that. It's got to be this. And, uh, yeah, that's sort of part part A of the thesis of the book. Anyway, um, the other part that it talks about is... um, uh, allied to that is is the priming of people's views in relation to things. So, um, so if you ask an initial priming question, you can change the results that people give in a second follow-up question. So, for example, uh, they said to people, um, do you think uh, that the maximum height of a redwood tree is 1,200 feet? Is, is it more or less than 1,200 feet? Okay, so they said that to one group of people. To another group of people, they said, do you think the maximum height of a redwood tree is more or less than 180 feet? Okay, so the first group were asked, what do you think the maximum is? Is it more or less than 1,200? And the other ones were told, do you think it's more or less than 180? People gave their answer. Then the next question they were asked is, what's your best guess of the maximum height? And what you find, Scott, is the people who were primed by the high figure of 1,200 feet give a higher answer or a higher guess. The people who were primed with the low figure give a lower guess. Lower guess, yeah. Mm. Same with real estate agents. They get a bunch of real estate agents and they show them a house and... um, they're giving them, they give them the list price. Uh, some of them get a high list price. Some of them give a low list price. They're told to ignore the list price and they claim that they, in fact, ignore the list price. But studies show that the ones given the low list price give a low valuation. The ones who give a, get a high list price, or, you know, asking price, sorry, from the vendors, give a higher price. They can't help themselves. Another one, Scott, this one is really frightening. It it, it doesn't even have to be related. So the information that people are given beforehand can be totally unrelated and it will still affect their decision in the subsequent question. So um, let me get to this one. I'll just turn to this page because it's... it's, This one's crazy. Uh, (laughs) A bunch of German German, uh, judges. So these are actual judges with an average of more than 15 years' experience on the bench, okay? They've been given um, a description of a woman who's been caught shoplifting uh, and given the details of this fictitious shoplifting offence. They then are told to roll a pair of dice, and the dice are loaded, that the dice are either going to come up with a three or a nine, okay? Uh, 
Okay. As soon as the dice come to a stop, the judges were asked whether they would sentence the woman to a term in prison uh, greater or lesser in months than the number shown on the dice. So a judge rolls a three. Okay, are you going to give a sentence higher or lower than the three? Or they roll nine, you're going to give it higher or lower than the nine. So they'll give their answer to that. And then the judges are instructed to specify the exact prison sentence they would give to the shoplifter. What they found is that the ones who rolled a nine gave a higher sentence than the ones who rolled a three. It's That's really Scott. quite frightening, isn't it? Because the, they've got learned judges yes. who are intelligent, thought-provoking, and yeah, yes. that's really frightening, isn't it? It is frightening. So, Scott, um, uh, after all that, um, after all that, when you read that sort of experience, you would say, well, a question in a census that starts off with, uh, what religion are you, rather than the New Zealand one which says, are you religious, could have a marked effect on the result. I think it's a compelling argument. It is a very compelling argument, for mm. sure. Mm. Question from Jay Bennett. Should we gather religion for children since generally their parents put their own religion down? Good point, Joe. Um, I was trying to find the figure for one- and two-year-olds, and I couldn't locate it. I think maybe more data comes out later because I can remember looking at previous census data showing that babies aged two and under, you know, 34% of them were Christian or something crazy like that. So, um, mm. so yes, parents do include their kids in the data. And um, I think more will come out where you'd be able to extrapolate, where you'd be able to take the kids out and just be able to look at the adult figure. Perhaps. Well, we'll have to wait and see whether or not that's actually allowed to be, because you know you've got. Yeah, that's a damn good question. It should be a breakdown in the. I mean, let the parents say it if they want to. I don't care if you can break down the figure. We should be at some stage down the track be able to separate the kids out of the equation and go. Okay, of adults, these are the percentages. I think that should be possible. One would have thought so. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's that. Um, so, Simon, I'm looking forward to you reading the book and it's a fascinating one that's got lots of stuff for us to talk about. Um, Scott, see, there are, others, there are other statistics floating in and other things going around, Scott, where you would think that the no religion in Australia would be much higher but the sort of questions asked are things like, do you believe in God? So we've got people, uh, you know, up to 50% of Australians in various surveys saying, no, I don't believe in God. But we've got a number of them saying, well, yes, I'm a Christian. So we've, we've, we've actually got people who are going, I don't believe in God, but yes, I'm a Christian. Like, this is, so yeah, it's, all, it's crazy, you know, how, isn't it? How yeah. the question is phrased does have a significant impact on it. So... So that's that. Um, Atheist Foundation um, came out with a press release and in the very initial parts of the press release, I'll read parts of it, Scott, because I quite like it. The AFA says, while certain religions represented by the Australian Christian Lobby, for example, enjoy close connections with certain politicians, atheist representatives have tried and failed on multiple occasions to meet with policymakers. It seems to us that certain religious groups get automatic consideration in the public policy sphere. They enjoy a privileged position that isn't afforded to other large groups, such as the non-religious. That has to stop. Good point, the Atheist Foundation of Australia. It does have to stop, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, And they quote figures saying that in England and Wales, the non-religious figure is 48.5%, New Zealand 42, uh, Scotland 52. Um, So that's part of theirs. Scott, this is the important statistic that people have to remember. This is from an earlier um, article that we read once before. This is, you know, out of everything, and this doesn't come from the census, dear listener. 
<laughs> there are around 3,000 Catholic priests in Australia, plus a few hundred retirees. Of these, an astonishing one in 20 has been charged with child sexual abuse offences. That's incredible, isn't it? And according to the best academic experts, the true number of offenders is, is probably one in 15. So while I'm sympathetic to people being lazy in their thinking and just ticking, yeah, I'm a Catholic... After the Royal Commission, I mean, the Royal Commission's been going for a couple of years, Scott. Like, we've heard this stuff prior to the census. You heard all that terrible stuff coming out from these groups and people still happy to say they're part of the Catholic faith or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I found that ridiculous because... And I occasionally do come to uh, blows with my brother-in-law over this. Um mm-hmm. Why is that? What's, what's no, no, because I have, you know, I, I made the example, I made the point over Christmas that we've got to start taxing churches mm. and that we've got to start tax. And I said, the church. And he turned around and he said, no, you can't just tax the Catholics. I said, no, I'm not talking about taxing the Catholics. I'm talking about taxing everyone, you know. And it's a very much a um, a very defensible line that the Christians do put up, isn't it? You know, they, they do defend themselves based on if you're attacking my faith, you're attacking me, mm. you know, and um, that is one of the things that I find really quite disturbing about the whole thing. Then debating skills are par excellence. <laughs> like They're very, very good. Before I leave this article about, uh, this was from The Monthly, a blog by Richard Cook, uh, which gave that statistic about the number of Catholic priests um, he also said they offend at six times the rate of all other Christian denominations combined. And, Scott, we particularly like this this paragraph. I have to read it again, even though it's not particularly relevant. Some have argued celibacy is a factor in this pattern of offending. Um, I'm beginning to think that church doctrine is a blessing in disguise. Just imagine the kind of multi-generational crime wave we'd be looking at otherwise. <laughs> I remember that. Yes, I remember that quite well. Yeah, it was. It was very. It, it gave me a hell of a laugh at the time when I read it. Yeah, mm. Mm. Scott, if there weren't enough reasons to despise one nation, <laughs> we've got one more today. Would <laughs> you like to tell a dear listener? One Nation's Queensland leader and member for Budrum, Steve Dixon MP, has committed that a One Nation Queensland government will give financial boost to the school chaplaincy program. Um, They're idiots. Um, They're fools. They're blah, 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 blah. Now, if we then... He's talking about uh, after consideration from a, uh, of a request from the Scripture Union Queensland, One Nation Queensland State Government will provide a top-up payment of $10,000 per chaplain a year in the first term of government. That equates to a state funding of $6.5 million per annum. Now, I can't understand what planet he's from. You know, he is... He's out there saying that the you know there's currently 650 chaplains based in 823 schools across Queensland, but you know it's that's madness. Hypers- it's they already get twenty thousand dollars from the federal government, and he yeah. wants to give an extra ten thousand dollars per chaplain from the state government. Yeah. From the state government, and what he doesn't understand is well this is the fundamental thing that he doesn't understand is that chaplains don't have to be christian no like they could be muslim exactly so he could be promoting a scheme where he's agreeing to pay $10,000 to, to muslims yeah. and a mom to go into a school yep. and preach the islamic faith like, does he exactly. understand that's how it works? Like, I don't think he does. You can't have a secular chaplain, but it's not limited to Christians. So mm. he has no idea that that's one of the potential, you know, consequences of this sort of plan. But, this, you know, he's on the Sunshine Coast, and that is a hotbed of evangelical... Absolutely, it is. Stuff yeah. happening on this. The schools there are... Um, are riddled with some pretty hardcore evangelical types. Uh, his statement here is, 
I have personally seen the fantastic work that chappies do on the Sunshine Coast and I am certain that this is translated right across Queensland and indeed across Australia. So there you go, dear listener. If you needed another reason not to vote for One Nation, then uh, there's a good one. Well, I mean, that's going to make it 30000 bucks a year going per chaplain. Mm. Now, there was that uh, number that you put on Facebook that said that um, uh, the Scripture Union takes three quarters of it, and it takes um, a quarter of it or something like that to administer it, doesn't it? Well, I think the actual... Because it was worked out at $50 an hour... Yeah. And the actual chappie gets about $18 an hour. Yeah, something so like the, that, yeah. So the rest of the $50 goes to Scripture Union. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, it was kind of like two-thirds of the money paid. It doesn't actually go to the chaplain. It goes to yeah. Scripture Union. Scripture Union, yeah. For administrative costs. Yeah, it's a load of garbage, isn't it? Yeah. Ah. <sighs> Well, anyway. Scott, the uh, the number of Catholics may be down, apparently, according to the census, but there's still a bucket load of them in Cabinet. So I dragged up an old one that referred to the Abbott ministry in December 2013. Um, 14 of 17 Cabinet ministers were privately educated at that one, and... Um, Oh, where's my figure about how many were Catholics? Um, da, 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 da. Eight of 19. Um, yeah, because I said 14 of 17 because I couldn't get the information on two of them about where they were privately educated. So 14 of the 17 were privately educated. Eight of 19 cabinet members were Catholic. That was in 2013. And I've had a look at the current list, Scott, trying to work out... Um, just do a quick Google on cabinet members' names and see if mm. they're um, see if they're openly Catholic or what, whatever they are. So here we go. Are they practicing Catholic or are they submarine Catholics? Well, the, what I've been able to detect, okay, we've got twenty-two cabinet members at the moment. Nine of them I couldn't get any information, so that left me with uh, thirteen. Of those, eight are Catholic, four are Jewish, four are Christian, and one's a Jew. So, yeah. But also, Scott, so that's way out of proportion to the so-called 22% of the population. Mm -hmm. But it's the heavy hitters in this cabinet who are the Catholics. So we've got the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, Catholic. Mm -hmm. We've got Barnaby Joyce, the Deputy, Catholic. Uh, Julie Bishop, she's Christian. The Attorney General, Brandis, is Catholic. The Treasurer, Scott Morrison, is Hillsong. Minister for Finance... Matthias Corman, he's hardcore Catholic. Infrastructure and Transport, Darren Chester, born into a Catholic family. Defence Industry, Christopher Pine, Catholic. Ah, um, Michaela Cash, Liberal Catholic. And Resources in Northern Australia, Matthew Canavan, Catholic. I mean, some big of the big heavy hitters in the Cabinet are either Christian or Catholic. They've got control, despite... doesn't matter what the census says, does it? Like, the census could put Catholics at 5%. What would it matter if, when you look at the cabinet, it's stacked like that? It just doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter initially. However, I do think that over time, you're going to have a, uh, a situation where you're going to erode those numbers down to a point where there is no way that they could listen to them. You'd have to... You'd have to erode the the support for them would be eroded to that point that they couldn't listen to them, yeah. Yeah. So that that's that was my hope for it was that the um, that the that the census result would come out with such a strong number that they would have no choice but to listen to us. Mm. Yeah. Well, Scott, I still think that because we are the largest group though now, mm. I do think they've got no choice but to listen to us. When are they going to hear us? Sorry? When are they going to hear from the non-religious sector? Because well, the, you know, the halls you, you, of power you, are crawling with, with religious lobbyists. There's not yeah, a single I know that. secular lobbyist there. 
but you know, you're trying to get you're trying to get put together a secular lobby that um, you know, that, then they'll have no choice but to listen to us. Brian is working on it, I believe. So yes. there's stuff yeah. in the wings. You'll, we'll be announcing it here when it when, as soon as we can. <laughs> Scott, what sort of labor opposition is this? Oh god, I don't know. It's unbelievable, isn't it? You know, anyone that's, you know, Tanya Plibersek, she, she always struck me as an intelligent woman, but of late she's making an utter fool of herself, you know, and she is beating this Catholic drum right down to the end. Um, you know, she said that she, the Labor government will restore Catholic school funding irrespective of the budget position. You know, she doesn't even understand that this has got nothing to do with the budget. It's a principle of the whole thing. And the principle is that you don't fund private schools. Mm. You know? And that's the thing, that she doesn't understand. And it's... It's reminiscent of when Tony Abbott was opposition leader. You know, they called him Dr. No and that sort of stuff. This lot are following his footsteps. That everything that the coalition government puts forward, they say no to. Now, this is some... You, you this would have is thought so... a Labor opposition would be committed to to helping the poor government schools. Exactly, yes. A needs-based sort of formula. Mm. And Plibersek is just paying, playing sort of games where she's... Dear listener, it's it's all to do with the Catholic vote. Boy, we're giving the Catholics a good bash on this episode. Oh, well, yeah. Worthy yeah. of it. And disclosure, I was, I was raised a Catholic... So I went to Catholic schools all my life. I was an altar boy, for goodness sake. So, <laughs> um, so you know, I'm entitled to have a good go at them, if you like, if I want to. Uh, well, I wasn't Catholic, but I've got Catholics in my family. So. Yeah. <laughs> but it's all, you know, originally uh, in the uh, early days, you know, the, the Catholic vote was strongly tied to the Labor Party. Hmm. Um, and... And that's transitioning now. The, the they were you know poor working class Catholics attached to the Labor vote, and when um, Menzies started funding Catholic schools, uh, in amongst the split with the DLP happening, you know, at the, just prior to that, the um, the Labor Party just came under pressure, and and this is just an example of the Labor Party trying to claw back this Catholic vote. But they've moved on, Labor Party, to, you know, rich and aspirational Catholics in the upper class with their private schools. They're, they're not in your camp anymore, it seems. You've got to be true to your constituency and uh, you're just going to piss them off if you start funding. I mean, she just has to maintain that every dollar that's been cut from Catholic um, schools is going to be... Um, Paid back under a Labor government if they get in. Uh, yeah, but what are they going to do? Are they going to are they going to restore the special deals and that sort of stuff that have been that have been ripped out? Apparently, but, but see, also. that's absolutely bloody criminal, isn't it? Because those special deals were given. It was giving hand, handing over cash in in bulk straight to the um, Catholic faith, mm-hmm. and then the faith then divided up amongst the schools. It had no. Um, there was no uh, questions asked about which school got what or anything like that. It just went to them, and then the whole lot was then handed out holus bolus the way the church wanted it to. That's bloody criminal, that is. The other thing is, she was asked how she's going to pay for this, and mm. the obvious way would be to would be to cancel the corporate tax cuts that the Liberals have proposed. So she was asked, well, is that what you're going to do, cancel the tax cuts? And she refused to say, like, mm. this is the easiest answer for a Labor opposition to say, of course, we were going to yeah. cancel those. Yeah. Boom, boom, $50 billion. Mm. We, mm. Can do, we, we can do all sorts of stuff with that. Um, but no, refuse to say. Mm. God, if you're... It's, what sort of Labor opposition are they? they it just doesn't make sense. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, you know, and she's she's really she's really painted herself into a corner on this, and she's looking like a fool, mm. you know. It's really it's really quite distressing to see it happen, actually. But anyway, mm. yeah. 
Scott, we were going to talk about Jane Caro, but I think we've given schools and funding a bit of a bash that we'll leave for another time. But Jane Caro, you know, she's a potential candidate, I think, as she's on the on a list for perhaps as a spokesperson for secular issues. And um, so anyway, we'll, we'll give that one a miss um, and move on to some other topics while we still can. Um, Scott, um, in Montreal... Uh, they've come up with a with a good rule. Um, yeah, uh, they've come out with some new guidelines uh, for Catholic priests, and this has come from the um, from the Catholic Archdiocese of Montreal. And the new guideline is uh, that priests should never be left alone with children. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty solid and and. Um, and a good idea, I would have thought. I wonder it what is, the situation is here in Australia, Scott. I wonder if a, I wonder if there's a guideline to say to, to all priests, but in particular Catholic priests, because one in fifteen of them has been probably guilty of, or one in twenty is guilty, or or been accused of it. Is there a rule that they? Sh- I couldn't tell you. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know if somebody, you know, when we do get a secular person on a panel. If we can just ask the question, is there a policy now where a priest should not be alone with a child? Makes sense. It makes perfect sense, but it also um, is a sad indictment on the whole organisation that they had to go that far, isn't it? You know, that they had to say that you can't be alone with with them ever, full stop, move on. You know, it's... Yeah, it's it is. The, it's the way of the modern world as well, Scott, because a mate of mine is a university lecturer and he always has the door to his office open. He never closes it so that if mm-hmm. a student comes in to talk about something, uh, anybody walking past can always look in and that's his um, self-protection against any accusations that might occur down the track. So, um, Yeah, and I can understand there, that, yeah. If the Catholic Church does not have that policy, or any of the churches for, the mat- for that matter, they, they should. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, Scott, um, there's a play called The Magnolia Tree. It centres around three disconnected siblings, Jack, Vicky and Deb, who have come together to choose a nursing home for their mother, who is suffering from severe dementia and has been largely unresponsive for years. The mood takes a sharp turn when Jack suggests that instead of the nursing home, uh, they put their mother mother out of her misery that night. (laughs) And the play goes on and there's all the tension and all the rest of it. And apparently part of the gist of this play is that there are two endings, one where Vicky ends the life of her mother and one where she does not. And the audience gets to decide. So at mm. some point they pause the play and say, what do you reckon, kill her or not kill her? And this article from the Catholic News was dismayed to find that on opening night um, the audience chose that, um, that she should kill her mother. Well, I don't understand what the hell they th- were thinking was going to happen. People are smart enough to know that there's a difference between reality and a play. And in the play, they were simply um, trying to bring about uh, an end to something that was uh, hypothetical, that was um, fictitious, that sort of thing. Mm. So I, I don't understand what the hell they were thinking, that they would actually get people saying, oh, yeah, let's keep her alive. It's madness, you know. Mm. it's absolutely insane that anyone would think that you were going to get a response other than killer. Yeah. yeah. I like the idea of the play, though. That's kind of neat. Quick show of hands. What do you want the ending to be? And Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm. The only problem uh, is you, you'd never get to see the alternative ending. Yeah, yeah that's true. And um, see, I, I like that idea, but I would... Well, I wouldn't want to watch it in America because I would always want a happy ending. I, that's why I struggle with mainstream American films is because it's always, you know, a happy ending. Um, and I like dark, grim movies with an awful ending. And you know, <laughs> you'd never get that in an American theatre. So No, that's very true. Yeah. Um, Scott, quick quiz for you from the Essential Report. Political donations. Oh, okay. We have on this podcast talked about 
political donations and mm -hmm. basically asked the question, why would somebody make a, a large political donation? Because they want think, a kickback. I can think of no other reason than they want a favour from the politician who receives the donation. Either mm. special time to hear their you know, requests on various matters or yep. perhaps even more sinister, but just favours of some sort related to their position is the obvious inference of what you'd expect if you're going to be paying a political donation. And for some reason, we think that this is perfectly normal and acceptable, above board, on top of the table, donations. We should be going, this is insanity. Mm-hmm. And we really, we've really got to have a very long conversation about this and we've got to stop it right now. It's absolutely madness that we've got the population thinking that and they've got to stop it right now. Your average Joe, and I don't mean you, Joe, listening uh, on, uh, on, <laughs> on our live chat there, but the average, and you're far up, you're above average. You're not the average Joe. You are an by merely tuning in with us on this initial live broadcast, you are an above average. There's your new nickname, Above Average Joe. Um, anyway, on Essential Report, they asked people, would you support or oppose introducing the following requirement concerning political donations? Um, and uh, what they've got here is, all politicians to publicly disclose meetings with representatives of companies, donors or unions. Only 79% said yes. So 21% thought they don't even have to disclose meetings with these donors. Um, would you support or oppose a ban on foreign donations? How many people do you think would support the idea, yep, let's ban foreign donations? Oh... Probably 40% would support that. So 64% support a ban on foreign donations. Okay, that I've misjudged the population, yes. 36, well, actually, there's some don't knows in here. 15% of people are quite happy for foreign donations. Who are these people? A ban on political donations by companies and unions. 16% are opposed to it. Caps on donations of $5,000, 15% are opposed to it. Um, I just, I'm, I'm flabbergasted that anybody would be in favour of political donations, that there would be that many. Who, you know, I was thinking maybe 1% or 2%, but not those sorts of figures. Well, it is amazing, isn't it, that you get those sorts of numbers coming through mm. and you think to yourself, you know, who the hell are these people that are saying this? Mm. Scott... It's been a while, but I get to say submarines. Dear, dear listener, if you're only... For those a recent, of you playing drinking game at home, yes. <laughs> if you're only a recent convert to the podcast, I've got a thing about our submarine contract. In summary, we're spending $50 billion on 12 massive submarines that are normally nuclear-powered, and we're paying extra to have them converted to diesel. So... Why do you have a big submarine? Because you're going to make a big expedition into the South China Sea and potentially attack China or somebody. That's why you need a big one. But if your intention is just to be defensive and to shoot troop ships that are coming our way, then you just need a small submarine that just sits down and waits for the enemy to come and is extremely quiet. And you can pick those up for under... A billion dollars each. You could have twelve of them for about ten billion. Mm. We could save ourselves, dear listener, forty billion dollars if we just took off-the-shelf submarines from Japan rather than converting nuclear submarines by the French. One of the arguments put forward for this ridiculous idea was, oh. Well, you know, they'll be doing a lot of the work in South Australia and that's going to save some jobs. Well, surprise, surprise, dear listener, article came out which basically says that 
You know the CEO of uh, that French company that's building the submarines who said... DCNS? You know, yeah, that 90% of the build would occur in Australia. Well, he doesn't work for us anymore. And funny, you know, we can't really commit to that figure anymore. It's all a bit rubbery and not, just don't know what's going to happen. Right. That's where we stand now with our $50 billion contract that we are guaranteed nothing in terms of... It was outrageously expensive what it was going to cost to employ 1,200 shipbuilders in South Australia. But when we could, have, we could have sub- continued to subsidise the uh, car manufacturing industry for decades to come yet. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So that's, you know, that's a disaster that somebody at some point has to stop. And there's another disaster, Scott, with F-35 fighters that we're getting from the US military. Yeah, and I had read a periphery about this before this, but then I got really into it with this John Menadieu article. Yeah. Mm. Do you listen up? <sighs> Apparently, this is the worst, you know, inverted commas, fighter jet that we could possibly get involved with. It's... <laughs> What they've tried it's very to do expensive. is yes. create a jack of all trades aeroplane that could that could work for the for the navy and the army and the air force, and they've ended up with a plane that doesn't do the job for anybody, and it uh, essentially what they worked on is its foremost facet or key feature was it would be stealthy so that it could sneak up on other planes and get the first shot in. So even if it wasn't quite as fast or quite as powerful or quite as manoeuvrable, it could sneak up, get the first shot in and game over before its shortcomings are exposed. And mm. in this article, which quotes various people and their uh, qualifications in the field, that theory was just a marketing and publicity gimmick that just doesn't work it's inherently a terrible aeroplane it's in mock combats with with other aircraft it, it always loses and it's likely to lose to a 1950s soviet mig-21 if it ever came into contact with one that's how bad it is and apparently we're, bunching a bo- we're buying a bunch of them, Scott, at some stage. I think. Yeah, we're g- taking delivery of 120 of them, aren't we? Is it that many? I don't know yet. I haven't got to that point. But again, mm. another military contract that we need to cancel and get out of. Well, I think we should cancel and get out of it because it's, um, you know, the Yanks have got the money to throw at it and that sort of stuff and they're throwing a bucket load of money at it. Mm. I think we should pull out and, you know... Um, Buy them from the Japanese. The Japanese have got a very good fighter that is a, um, oh, it's a model of the F, whatever it is, 16 or something like that, that they manufacture under license over there. And we could buy it from them at a fraction of the price and we could move on with it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Scott, uh, here's an interesting question for you. Yep. Can't have same-sex marriage in Australia. Right? No, apparently not, because we've got to wait until we get to vote for it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm a guy, and I'm married to mm-hmm. a woman, mm-hmm. and I decide to have a sex change and become a lady. Yeah. And I get my passport changed and my birth certificate changed to show that I'm now... A woman? Yep. Hey, presto. Same-sex marriage. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I don't think me or Brian are going to line up for our sex change operations. So. <laughs> but, but, but in all seriousness, dear listener, I mean, if I decided to get a sex change, I can get a new passport and I can get my birth certificate amended to show that I'm... Changed to a new gender. Ah, oh, there's a but in here, Scott. I'll give it to you. You know there's one. Yeah, I know there's a but, yeah. The actual legislation says that, yes, you can change your passport and your birth certificate, except if you're married. Can't do it. Oh, for because God's then sake. Because could result in a same-sex marriage. Oh. So there's a specific 
exemption. Uh, this is in particular relates to the New South Wales Act that says, um, you know, a person who's over 18 and has undergone sex affirmation procedure, um, uh, you know, the records will be changed, you know, uh, provided they're not married. And an alteration of the record of a person's sex must not be made if the person is married. So, dear listener, if you were thinking of <laughs> sex change operation <laughs> as a method of achieving a same-sex marriage, uh, it's not going to work. It's not, a, it's not a loophole. But for a minute there, Scott, it looked promising. Well, I yeah, can't see it. It'd be very popular anyway. So, yeah. no. uh, finally, Scott, uh, we'll finish up with this one. Um, right-wing Tony, who initially alerted us to the jihadists in the Philippines, yeah, uh, would be interested in this. Um, so basically, you know, it's one of the islands in the Philippines has has basically been. A, uh, a Muslim-dominated society for 400 years. Mm. This article gives a bit of the background to it. And, uh, yeah, it's basically been a Muslim society for 400 years. The Spanish um, uh, tried to control them and couldn't, uh, gave up on them, um, uh, attacked on that territory when they ceded the Philippines to the Americans in the treaty ending the Spanish-American War. They basically said, well, we give in and here, take these guys as well because yeah, exactly. yeah. We, don't, we can't do anything with them. Uh, they've continually throughout the 400 years just objected to any sort of control by non-Muslims and, of course, they showed the Japanese a thing or two whenever they tried to into the fray during the World War. And um, this is an article which is written by a former Australian ambassador to the Philippines saying that it's been going on for 400 years. It is deeply embedded that relies on religion and also tribalism and corruption and... If we get involved in some sort of military sense, we should be exercising extreme caution and probably just don't do it, I think, is the gist of what he's saying. And it's not something that's going to be solved, probably, unless you actually give them their own territory because they've been at it for 400 years. It's not a new thing. It's not some little uprising that's going to be curled with a bit of muscle and stay out of it. That's, that's what he's saying. Yeah, I can understand where he's coming from, but I also think that um, if our troops should be anywhere, they should be in the southern Philippines, not in uh, not in Western Iraq oh, or Syria. Well, you know. Well, how about just off the coastline, making sure none head our way? <laughs> how about that as an involvement? I reckon. Oh. I think that um, if our troops have to be anywhere, they should be involved in our neck of the woods and they should be in the philippines in thailand and if necessary in indonesia but um i do take your point though you don't want to get them involved you want them to stay out of it as much as humanly possible mm, that's right so so anyway that's the background for that it's not some recent uprising it's a uh it's something that's been going on for a long long time and is not easily solved with a bit of military muscle Let's hope we no, it's not, going to be easy, it's not going to be easily solved at all. And I think his initial reaction is probably right. You're probably better off staying out of it. Mm. Yeah. All right, Scott, on that note, we shall mm. um, finish. Thank you very much this. for listening in. Mm. And, and we've watching got, in uh, Above Average Joe. and got five people viewing us. Is that right? Oh, there we go. Yeah. Five, five watching now, so that could be you and me and then three others. That's probably so. it. It might be more relevant at another time where there's like a budget night or some breaking thing like that where we can get people involved. Uh, mm. so anyway, it's a good thing to have a go at. And uh, thank you, dear listener, for tuning in and we'll be back next week. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye now. Bye.
Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.